I'll read Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. It says here, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudeus, I beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to bring forth your word again this morning. I pray, Lord, that the weakness of my voice wouldn't hinder the Holy Spirit from working in the hearts. I pray, dear God, that you would be strong in my weakness. I thank you, God, for loving us. I thank you, Lord, for the visitors here today. I thank you, God, for the folks that make church a priority in their life. I just pray, Lord, that we would understand what the song said, that your ways are higher. And thank you for that, Lord. It was really encouraging this morning. I pray, Lord, you would bless our time together, the church family. Help us, Lord, to love one another and to be unified in the faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this passage we've looked last week, uh, of course, joy is a big part of the book of Philippians. And last week we looked at the spiritual family, the family of God. And how the first chapter, the first verse really refers to the spiritual aspects, the spiritual birth, my brethren, and the family. And so, Brother Voss is here from Montana, but you know, right away as I understood and I felt that we were of the same family, the family of God. And I rejoice in that. Uh, last, last week I was talking to Brother Walter back there, and he was telling me when he got saved in 1960, that was eight years before I was born. <laughs> Amen. He's been saved longer than I was born. <laughs> and you know what? It's probably his third time here. But, you know, I just really feel that we are part of the same family. And that's so important. I love to be able to call people my brother and my sister. You know, that's so important. But today, we're going to go a little bit deeper. Um, now the Apostle Paul is getting more specific He's mentioning names. I mentioned that last week. Wouldn't you love to have the Apostle Paul come to your church and name your name and tell you to be the same mind with somebody else you're at odds with? <laughs> you know, that'd be fun. <laughs> well, he did that here at the church of, uh, in the church in uh, Philippi. And he said, I beseech Eutychus, uh, Eutychus and be, I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And so he had no problems in, in uh, pointing that out. So we're talking local church here. Last week we mentioned a little bit about the local church. We saw how the Philippian jailer was one of the first members of the church at Philippi. And uh, probably even the demoniac woman, I wouldn't doubt that later on she started going to church because she got delivered of that demon. And uh, of course Lydia was there and others. And uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's got these people in his heart and mind. And he's thinking of them and he's longing for them. And um, the local church is a special thing for me. You say, well, pastors are supposed to say that. <laughs> yes, we are. There's a problem if a pastor doesn't. But the pastor isn't the only one that's supposed to say that. The people of God are supposed to say that. 
people ask, you say, what is a local church? Well, there's a very simple definition that we've used over the years. I'm sure Brother Voss probably used something similar to this as well. It's a, a local church is a body. It's a place where born-again believers are scripturally baptized. They're gathered together to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what the local church is. And that's our purpose. And so you got to be saved. you got to be scripturally baptized. And you got to be involved in what God's doing here. It ought to matter to you. Amen? And that, that creates unity. If all of us catch that vision, we can have a unified vision of what God wants for us here at Airdrie Baptist Church. <clears throat> we live in a very confused state of Christianity today. And the confusion is being propagated by churches, unfortunately. Um, this last week I got an email. Uh, of course, Airdrie has a ministerial, and the ministerial sends updates. Now, I'm not a part of the ministerial, but they still have me on their email list. I've never asked to be, but I don't mind being on it. Um, one of the statements that were made is this. It says, unity breeds and precedes God's blessing on a city. So plan to make the Airdrie ministerial a priority each month. <laughs> and I like the sound of that, but the problem is it's not necessarily scriptural. Unity isn't what precedes blessing. Just unity does not. There's a lot of times in scriptural people unified and they weren't blessed. Look at Babylon. <laughs> they all unified. They tried to build a tower to heaven and God didn't bless. In fact, he took that down. He says, I got to shut this down. That wasn't right. See, the key is doctrine. Truth. Truth is a source of unity, you know? And so I thought I'd just give you one point here to start off with, just talking about the unity of doctrine in the local church. Um, There are those today that are calling for unity of fellowship without the unity of doctrine, and this is a grave error. In fact, what they do is they they compromise truth for the fellowship, (laughs) and that's not right. We have to compromise the fellowship for the truth. Yes, the truth is all that matters. Amen. The first thing I wanted to point out is that there is one faith. There's not multi-faiths. You know, so many times when you get involved in a ministerial, they'll come up with these type of taglines that, oh, we're going to have a multi-faith service. And I think about that. The scripture says in Ephesians 4 verse 5, there's one Lord one faith, and one baptism. One faith. So there is no (laughs) multi-faith. Amen. When it comes to God, there's only one. And so what we can't do is buy into this idea that somehow we can be involved in multi-faiths. Multi-faith is just talking about many messages. and, And most of them are error. And only one of them is right. You can't have everybody right. Amen. In Jude chapter, verse number three, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So what we know is this, 
there was no second delivery. Amen. <laughs> it was a one-time delivery. And at the end of the first century, the, the delivery was complete. And so what you got to be careful of today, you'll have people bringing you a watchtower, and they'll say, oh, this will expand on the faith. <laughs> or the Book of Mormon, oh, Jesus wrote another one. No, the Bible says it's already been delivered. There is no second delivery of faith. And so we have the word of God, the truth. And because of that, because there's only one faith, now this is where you don't become popular with people. Because the Bible tells us that if we truly believe that there is one faith, that we will hate the false way. We'll hate the false way. In Psalm 119, verse 104, it says, Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Because it's through the truth that I get understanding. This is how I grow. This is how I become what God wants me to be. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That happens from the Bible. Amen. If we really believe that, what we're going to do is we're going to hate the false way. I hate it when they have a Bible that's different than this one. <laughs> I don't just say, well, that's, you know, to each his own. No, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate Bibles that do not refer to the scripture the way this one does. The truth that this one gives that changes the message that we have in our Bible. I hate it. Not just, oh, it's okay, everybody. No, <laughs> I hate it. And you ought to hate it. And that's what will put the fire in your belly to stand for the truth. Because you know if you don't have the truth, your children, ultimately, and your grandchildren are going to die and go to hell. Yeah. They're not going to have the message they need. You have to stand for the truth. Contend for the faith, one faith. Amen? Amen. That's why you'll never have Airdrie Baptist Church joining up with multi-faith services. Amen. That is a wrong message to you people. Amen. Your pastor would be saying, oh, it's okay. We can hang out with multi-faith. <laughs> No, we hate it. <laughs> we hate it. And if we hate it, we don't go and be a part of it. Amen. Unless you guys like doing things you hate. Nobody likes that. Amen. Well, we don't do that. <clears throat> One of the biggest problems today within the context of Christianity is the doctrine of separation. Separation is not loved by people. See, that's what the problem is. We don't want to separate. <laughs> we don't want to draw lines, even though Jesus drew lines all over the place. Uh, there's three different types of separation. There's personal separation. Do you realize that everybody in this room has some form of personal separation? There's probably everybody on this earth has some form of personal separation. There are some people that won't go worship Satan. <laughs> Amen. That's a separation. There's some people that won't watch pornography. That's a separation. Even in the world that are not even saved. They won't watch it. So everybody has some form of separation. 
the thing is with God's people, our separation is dictated by what the Lord has said, our personal separation. And so instead of just going by what you feel or what I think is the right line to draw, we go to the word of God and we let him draw the line for us. That's personal separation. It's not popular. In fact, most Christian churches will call that legalism today. But it's protecting you. It's protecting your family and your children. And it's very important that you have that form of separation. The second type is ecclesiastical separation. That means that there has to be a separation between churches or people that call themselves churches and your church. Now, we have churches like Brother Voss is here. I'm sure if I'd see his statement of faith, we'd probably be pretty close, right down the line. So that means that we'd be able to fellowship a lot more as opposed to someone that has a different faith. You understand? But wherever that doctrine changes, we have to draw a line. And so as a pastor of this church, it's my responsibility to draw those ecclesiastical lines of separation (laughs) on who I'll have come preach here. I wouldn't have uh, Franklin Graham come here and preach. Even though there's probably some good messages he has, (laughs) you know. But the thing is, he promotes wrong Bible versions. He promotes uh, ungodly music in the church. All kinds of different things. And we're not for that. So, so what we do is we draw lines, doctrinal lines when, when it comes to doctrines, but also when it comes to churches that don't abide by certain personal separation standards. We also draw some lines, you understand? Separation is important. Now, the third type of separation <coughs> is governmental separation. Now, Baptists know this better than anybody, <laughs> you know? We know what it's like to have the church with government power. If a church has government power, what they're going to start doing is, if you don't believe what I believe, we're going to put you in jail or even kill you. And that's what happened. Many Baptists, millions and millions of Baptists have been martyred over the, over the centuries because they would not bow down to simple things. Uh, even if you didn't believe that the wafer turned into the body of Christ, transubstantiation. If you would not accept that, they would kill you. If they would not let your, you would not let your child be baptized as a baby, they would force them. And if they did not, and if you would not let it happen, you would be jailed, imprisoned, or even killed. That's what happens when governmental power enters into the church. See, that's what separation of church and state is. I think now what's happening is um, politicians, they're not talking about separation of church and state. They're trying to separate the state from God. And that's not what it says. (laughs) We still need God in our government, but we don't need the power of the government in our churches. Amen? And so we don't pull God out of the government. In fact, if God's out of the government, you've got a pretty poor nation. (laughs) It's pretty rough. Every time a nation flourishes, it's because the the government has God in it. And that's why America has done so well over the the centuries. Amen? It's because in God we trust. But you know what? People don't like that anymore. They want to pull that off the coins. 
They want to pull those sayings off the courthouses. They don't want God in there. And when God gets pulled off, there's no more blessing, yeah. you know. And so governmental separation is important. The principle that we get this from goes way back to Genesis chapter 1. God teaches us in Genesis in the creation of the world. He teaches us many principles. One of those is that whatever is produced is produced after its own kind from the seed that's within. That's why we procreate and we have children. <laughs> the seed started with Adam and it's been reproduced. But not only that, we have the seed of Christ. The Bible talks about how that his seed remaineth in you. So if you've received Christ as your savior, you become like Christ. And what you reproduce with that seed is what? Other Christians, <laughs> amen? There's a principle that guides you throughout scripture. When you look at the creation principles of the Bible, that's why in Genesis chapter six, I don't believe that demons and, and, and women uh, had children. There's some people that believe that. I'm sorry, the nature of a demon is different than the nature of a person. Amen? And they, they do not procreate. And you cannot have children. Now, you can have demon-possessed men have children. Amen? But demons themselves do not marry. And they, they cannot reproduce from a seed that's within themselves. You understand that? And so I don't buy into this Genesis 6 theory <laughs> that somehow there's a demonic race <laughs> that came in. I believe there's people and, that those, and people can become demonically possessed <laughs> and they can create some pretty bad offspring, <laughs> amen? But no, the nature has to stay within its nature. That's a Bible principle. It helps guide us through the scriptures. And one of those is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Yeah. You see, right in the beginning in creation, even before sin, God introduced the principle of separation. Creation separation. Where he separates that which is light from the darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, For what communion hath light with darkness? Amen. Uh, we're not supposed to yoke together with unbelievers, the Bible says. Amen. And so those principles keep us going through our lives. And so that's not popular today. That's why maybe for many of you, that's the first time you heard that in Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> Amen. If you go a little bit further down, he says it again. And he made day and night and he divided the light from the darkness, and he said it was very good. <laughs> Amen? So it was a good thing. God claimed that it was good, that he divided the light from the darkness, the night from the day. And the Bible tells us in the book of, in, in the New Testament, I think First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, it tells us that we are the children of the, of the day, not the children of the night. Amen? So I tell our kids, you don't need to be out till one in the morning. <laughs> You don't need to be out till 2 in the morning. You come home at 11 o'clock. You come, out, come home before, before, the, before the night sets in. Amen. We're not children of the night. We're children of the day. That's where, we, that's where we're productive <laughs> in, the, in the light. Amen. I understand some of you guys in your shifts, you're saying, what about me? 
We'll talk about that later. <laughs> prosperity. People want prosperity. And they think just by us getting together and unifying together in fellowship, we're going to prosper, but it's not true. And that's why in Psalm 1, we read it this morning in Sunday school, how that um, blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like the tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You know something? When I got this book, and I'm living by the truth of this book, I got more friends than I know what to do with. I don't care about having 100 people around me, especially at the expense of this truth. I would rather stand alone in this room with this book than stand together with everybody else in this room without it. Amen. Because this is where prosperity comes from. This is how your leaf turns green, even though it's a desert around you, even though there's nothing that makes sense why you should prosper. When you live according to the word of God, he will prosper you. Amen. That's just truth. And so the boundary of truth, not tolerance, will dictate your boundary of blessing. The boundary of truth. How much truth is in your heart? That's how much blessing will be in your heart. Amen. How much truth do you live out? That's how much blessing you live out. Folks, we have to start living by truth. This church, we have to operate according to truth. Truth. Amen. And we'll continue to walk in the truth as this church. God will bless this church. And that's what I want. I want God to do great things. And he has been. God has been blessing us so mightily, you know. And I don't want to lose that. I'm fighting for it. Amen. And so let's stand for the truth. The Bible says in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and thou, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then sh- shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Prospering is, as you're going, God is blessing. Success is you finishing what God asks you to start. You'll never finish right if you don't live according to the word of God. Never. And you'll never enjoy the blessing along the way if you don't live according to the word of God. Prosper and success. That's what it's about, amen? That's what we want. And so, sound doctrine must precede fellowship. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says this, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That sounds like a good meeting, amen? Then it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That means what came first? The doctrine. What came second? The fellowship. (laughs) It didn't say the apostles' fellowship and doctrine. (laughs) But it says the the, the doctrine and then the fellowship. Amen? Understand that. Um, Sound doctrine must be taught. And that's why I give myself to study. That's why I want to teach the word of God. 
That's why I want to use the King James Bible. <laughs> this is our textbook, amen. Your, your knowledge is only as good as your textbook. And I want the best textbook. I got the King James Bible. It's good enough for me. And so sound doctrine must be taught. Sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. In Titus 2, verse 1, it says, But speak those things which become sound doctrine. The word sound means to be healthy or to be sound in the faith, meaning firm. So God says, I want you to have healthy doctrine, not weak doctrine, healthy doctrine. Uh, it says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, if, if thou put in remembrance, put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. Nourished up. That's a diet word, amen? We all love to be nourished, <laughs> amen? We're going to get nourished after the service today. You're looking forward to that nourishment. The Bible says you're being nourished right now. Nourished up. <laughs> you're taking this truth and you're making it a part of your spiritual life and your spiritual life is becoming healthier because you're hearing the word of God and you're applying it to your heart, amen? We need to be nourished up. Sound doctrine will help us defend our faith. In Titus 1.9 it says, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. The problem is we got people challenging us and we don't know what to say. We don't know how to approach them. And you know what? They twist us sometimes. And they start telling us all these doctrines. <laughs> you know, folks, I want to leave you with something here. And we're going to be done because my voice is almost done here, you know. <clears throat> There's a doctrine called replacement theology. Replacement theology believes that Israel has now been pulled out of all truth, all prophecy. They will no longer be restored. And the church has taken Israel's place. Now that sounds good. <laughs> but this is the problem. You see, when you go to the Old Testament and read the huge portions of the promises and covenants of God, it refers to the literal nation of Israel. <laughs> see, if you start believing replacement theology, so let's say God gave us the Old Testament, who is he talking to, the church? No, he's talking to Israel, because they're the only ones that existed, amen? We get the New Testament. Now we think somehow, because Romans uh, 10 and 11, or 9 and 10, uh, 10 and 11, tell us that, you know, Israel had to be cast aside, and we had to be grafted in as a wild branch and so forth, that somehow Israel is gone. <laughs> well, this is the problem. If that's true, then we got to go all the way back to the Old Testament, and we got to retranslate all of the covenants and all the things of the Old Testament. And wherever it says Israel, you have to retranslate that word to mean the church. See, God doesn't do that. <laughs> when he wrote it, he wrote it once, and he meant it for what he wrote it for. Yes, you know? And when he wrote the New Testament, it didn't nullify this. And it didn't somehow say this is not worth anything. No, because he says, I'm going to get back to this. We're going to bring that back in. Israel will be here for a thousand years and they'll be the ruling nation during the millennial kingdom. 
you know. So what's the difference? How is it that some people can so easily say, okay, Israel's gone, and the next person says, no way, <laughs> Israel's not gone. You think we'd just be in agreement. And this is where people say stuff like, you see, you Christians can't even agree. Oh, it's just a matter of how you interpret the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> it's how you interpret the Bible. You know? The heretics throughout history have always interpreted the scripture, spiritualizing what the Bible says. In other words, instead of taking it for what it says, they come up with an interpretation based on a spiritual interpretation of that passage. Folks, what you need to do when you go to the Bible, no matter what you read, this is the first thing you do. You find what's called the primary interpretation. <laughs> what is the primary interpretation? If you were to write me a letter, what I would want, what you would want me to do is read the words that you wrote me. <laughs> and then you'd say, just read what I wrote. That's what I mean. Now, what if I phone back and says, oh, I don't think you mean this. You mean something else. <laughs> you say, well, no. What I did is I wrote you a letter and those words tell you exactly what I mean. <laughs> so when you go to the scripture, what we do is we interpret literally and grammatically. Anybody who believes in replacement theology does not believe in the literal grammatical interpretation of scripture. That's where the problem lies. Do you understand that? So you can get all bent out of shape at all the little ins and outs of the doctrine. Or you can say, this is why you believe differently than me. Because when I read it, I try to get what the author is trying to tell me. <laughs> You're trying to tell the author what he's telling you. You understand that? Now, if you've never got the primary interpretation out of a passage, then you've got no business studying the Bible. <laughs> Amen. You've got to first go to the scripture and say, what is he saying? That becomes your message. See, a lot of preachers, what they try to do is because they want to be all unique. They go to the Bible and they come up with some wild <laughs> you know, interpretation based upon applying this and that and so forth. And you say, whoa, that's interesting, but it's not necessarily good Bible interpretation. I don't need to impress you with new things. All I'm trying to do is show you what the author has written to us. Literally, grammatically. That means that where it says, where there's a preposition, I found out what that preposition is denoting, what position is, is the subject in. You know, all those things, all those normal grammatical rules apply to my interpretation of scripture. The verbs and the nouns and the adverbs and things like that. That's how we interpret scripture. <laughs> we look at definitions of words. Folks, I don't have to look into the scripture to find a message. <laughs> I just have to find out what God says. And the message is right there. <laughs> Amen. Sometimes I just don't understand the words. And it's not because they're old English. It's because I'm stupid. <laughs> Amen. And I need to learn the words. There's easy words that we need to learn. I was <clears throat> looking at a passage yesterday. I was looking at Matthew 11, verse 29, where it says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I thought about that. What are you talking about an easy yoke? What does it mean to have an easy yoke? 
And really the interpretation of that word is where that yoke will provide you all the strength that you need to do the work. So when he says, if you take my yoke upon you and it'll make it easy, it's because he's carrying all the weight. Amen. And that's what the word taught me by looking up that word and defining that word easy. That's not old English. Amen. That's new English. That's a word we use every day. And so, you know what? If we would just go to the Bible and just interpret scripture the way that God says to interpret it, you would never have to worry about being deceived or drawn, drawn aside. But that's why people are coming to you and they're deceiving you because they're not interpreting the scripture properly. And you got to catch them there. And you got to get right down to the base problem. I know why you're thinking differently than me. It's because you interpret the Bible differently than me. Or you get caught up in talking about every doctrine under the sun. <laughs> and all you do is argue, argue, argue. <laughs> if there's a person that's here that say, I don't believe in literal grammatical interpretation of scripture, you don't belong in this room. You don't belong here. Because you'll be at odds with everything I preach. <laughs> you need to go find somebody else that doesn't interpret the Bible properly <laughs> and follow them. But what a lot of people do is they want the Bible to say what they want it to say. Some of the new uh, Bible study techniques, this is what they do. They have Bible studies and they sit around a table and this is what they'll ask you. They'll say, what does this, Bible, what does this passage mean to you? <laughs> it doesn't matter what it means to you. What it matters is, what does it say? And once you know what it says, then you'll know what it means to you and to you and to you. And if it means something to this person, it's going to mean the same thing to all the other 10 around the table. <laughs> Amen. You won't get a, a private interpretation. But that's what people want today. Well, that God is telling me. God is telling you nothing unless you learn to study this book properly. Amen? And that's what we want to do here. We want to teach people how to do that. When I'm, when I'm doing sermons like this, please take note. Next time you read your Bible, say, what did pastor say again? <laughs> and read that chapter and say, I'm not going to try to read into it. I'm just going to read what God said. And maybe what you need to do is get a notebook and just say, this is what happened in this passage and just write it down in your own words so that you understand what God wanted you to understand about that passage. <laughs> and then when you start doing word definitions, <laughs> God just breaks open the passage. That becomes your message. That becomes something you can tell your kids and tell your families, amen? And so let's do things properly and we will have sound doctrine in the church, amen? I want to leave you with this couple of points here. Sound doctrine must be preached despite how people respond to it. Sometimes I'm up here and I'm preaching and say, man, if I was sitting there and I heard this message, I'd be on my face, <laughs> you know, and everybody's just standing there doing nothing. Say, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> you know, this is good stuff. But I understand the Holy Spirit needs to do that work. He needs to do the work in me and the work in you. But the Bible says this in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. It says, preach the word, be in season, out of season. 
reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're in those days. But after their own lusts, their own desires, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So, well, I don't want to listen to that preacher. We're going to find a different church. This is going to be a better pastor. You're living out this passage right here. Your lusts are drawing you out. Your longings. That preacher, he's just too hard. He preaches things too straight, you know. Thank God. You're going to take it for granted. There's people all over this world that would cut off an arm to get a church like this. There's people that would walk 10 miles to come to a service like this. It's a shame some of the attitudes people have towards the house of God. And don't think for a second that you won't be held accountable for the Lord. You gotta love your church. I love it. I'll fight for it. I'll die for it. I'm gonna fight for your kids. Even if you don't fight for them, I'll fight for them. I don't care. I'm done this stuff. I'm, I'm done playing games with ungodly, worldly Christianity today. We are on the finish line of this race. There's a short sprint left. And I'm not going to spend it fighting people that don't love God. Yeah. I'm going to spend it with the people of God that love him. Amen. And we're going to go forward in the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. Oh, I hope you love it. If you don't, there's something wrong with your spiritual life. Take inventory this morning. If this today, you can't say, I love this church, the devil has done something in your heart. They need to repent and come to the Lord and find forgiveness because it's you, it's not them. It's not the other person. It's you. It's you. Blame yourself and then you'll find freedom. Blame others. And you're going to spend the rest of your life in bondage. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Oh, that God would give us a love for this church. Look around you. Look at these precious people. Shame on us. Yeah. If you don't love the people beside you. Yeah. If you wouldn't be able to give up on your little lusts so the people beside you can flourish and grow and become what God wants them to be. Amen. Yeah. God help us. Sound doctrine must be preached no matter what people respond, no matter what they do. But finally and lastly, sound doctrine must be lived. And the Bible says in Titus 2 verse 10, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Adorn is like putting on clothes. You're supposed to wear the Bible like it's, a, like it's a set of clothes. When people see your life, they should see the word of God being fleshed out. Yeah. Amen. Be careful. The devil is sly. He's going to get you to live a different kind of life. Not that kind of life. Adorn means to set in order. <clears throat> Titus 2 verse 7 it says, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part 
may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. It's all going to come out in the way you behave and the way you speak. That's where the word of God is seen in your life. Amen? Let me ask you this. This week, if you did an inventory of your week and how you talked, how you acted, where you went, can you honestly say that you were wearing the word of God like clothing? Or were you wearing something else? Amen.